This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Rabbi Marvin Heyer, founder and dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, among many other hats that he has worn throughout his life. How are you, Rabbi? Very happy to be with you. And um, the rest is all in your hands. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. If, if that's okay. the case, we're, uh, we're in for a difficult interview. But Rabbi Heyer, take us from the beginning. Obviously, you, as far as I understand, were not born in L.A., although I know you've been there for quite some time. And I imagine your life has taken on uh, some incredible directions that you maybe never anticipated. But where did it all begin? Well, it all began on the Lower East Side. On 71 Cannon Street, I was born in the Lower East Side. My parents came from Eastern Europe. I davened in the Litovitska shul, amongst many other shuls on the Lower East Side, a Hasidic shul. I had the schus of being brought up in a prolific neighborhood where uh, not only there were yeshivas, I met great personalities. Across the street from me uh, later on was from Moshe Feinstein, distinguished Posik Ador, the greatest Posik of our generation. And I went to Yeshiva, Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Shlomo Kluga on the Houston Street. I had a wonderful Rebbe, Rabbi Yankel of Flansgraben, Asat Machosid. That was the first time I ever heard of the subject of Holocaust. Really? When what, he, year, what year was that? That was when I was meaning, I, did, I didn't pay much attention to it. And when I was studying for my bar mitzvah, I was 12 and a half. Rabbi Yankel of Flansgraben, he, he had this custom. He reviewed the Torah with you. And if you were good, he pinched you. <laughs> so he pinched me and he said the following thing I never forgot. He said, remember, my, my first name is Moshe, Moshe Haya, Moshe. He said, remember, Moshe, when you're saying the Torah, you're not only saying the Torah for yourself. He said, you're saying the Torah for the millions of Jewish children that never had the opportunity to have a bar mitzvah because they were murdered in the Shoah. And uh, when he said that, that remained with me. Uh, I next saw that in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Shlomo Kluger. I was learning in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Shlomo Kluger Elementary School in 1948. My Rebbe was Rabbi Rosenblum. And I walked into the class and he had, uh, he always read the Tug Morning Journal, the Yiddish paper. So he read the paper, and suddenly he burst out crying in front of the class. And uh, he then explained, that when he came to himself, he explained. The headline is, Ayyid Medina was declared, the Jewish state was declared in Palestine. Yeah. And he said, nine years too late for me, I lost most of my family in the Shoah. 
Right. So that was the second time. And were both of these rabbis, were both of them survivors themselves? Uh, no, Rabbi Yankel of Flansgrab was in, in the, it came way before. Now, right. it could be that in other members of his family, but Rabbi Rosenblum, he came later, and, uh, but his, uh, his, all of his uh, family were killed in the Shoah. And he mentioned it on the day that Israel was created. Wow. And those were things that impacted my life later on. I would imagine those are pretty heavy messages for a young person. Uh, it sounds like they really made an impression. Uh, well, I, I, I remembered it every, every time, you know. Uh, so, yes, it made quite an impression on me. Now, did you have extended family that was still in Europe or had all of your family come over? No, my, my parents came over. But their other members of their family remained behind and were killed in the Shoah. And did they talk about that? They did. But they, the, again, it wasn't a topic of major conversation. And uh, matter of fact, I also noticed it during Yiska, out with those of us who went out, because our parents were alive, we went outside. It was a very long stay outside because of all the Kelmale Rachmans that were made. And that was also noticeable. So this is your early formative periods, right after the war, essentially, but in the Lower East Side. And it sounds like you had a very rich Jewish upbringing, very traditional, um, intensive education. Was it preordained that you would grow up and, and become a rabbi? Like, what was, the, what was the track for you early on? Never. I, I never, never dreamed of it, to tell you the truth. Uh, first thing, you'll, you'll find it uh, quite amusing. The first thing that I ever thought of doing, my first venture, and, and my parents were not rich. They were, you know, poor people. And I wanted to help out. So during Sukkot, I um, went into the Oshana's business. And... Uh, Used to, we used to go to the Soma River Parkway and cut the weeping willows in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Bring them home, plastic sacks, and the extras we sold in Canal Street during a few dollars. Now, what, what did Hoshana go for in those days for a bundle? <laughs> well, no, for a bundle, first of all, there was uh, the Hoshana. Wholesale, it was two cents. Two cents. And, uh, <laughs> retail, it was maybe a nickel or six cents. That's a good margin. Okay. There that I had my first idea, there on the Sawmill River Parkway. I said to myself, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> the night, we're going out there, you know. So I took three of the weeping willows in a plastic bag, took the train, and went to the Bronx Botanical Gardens. I waited for half an hour before somebody finally answered my question. What is the name of this plant? Said it was Salix purpurea. And so I said, can you tell me, can this be grown <laughs> so that you don't have the bugs and the holes? Right. Said yes. Looked it up, it was two nurseries. Princeton, New Jersey, and somewhere in Phoenix, Arizona. I said, I, know, I can't get to Phoenix. So I had two yeshiva boys. One of them was official Hochbaum. The other was Max Kamenetsky. We went into partnership. And we made a bit. We ordered, at one time, the biggest order that we gave 
was about 250,000. 250,000? 250,000, for wow. which we brought to Canal Street, but immediately became known that we had the best Hashanahs. So all the Hasidic Rebbes, their Gaboyim, that's how I met Yosel Ashkenazi, the Gabay of the Satmar Rebbe, Gabay of the Visions of Rebbe, the Gabay of the Bob of a Rebbe, and we sold all of our stuff. And later on, I was able to buy a ring and get engaged to my wife. Wow, so the no, Hoshanas no, live on. Yes. That's incredible. That How old? My introduction into <laughs> entrepreneurship. As a startup nation many years before. How, uh, how old were you in this story? The story, I was, let's see, I had to be, uh, when you started, so it would have been 18 and a half years old. Very, very enterprising young man. So obviously at some point, somehow you got derailed from this uh, very promising business career, entrepreneurship uh, career. What steered you off course, so to speak, or perhaps on course, if you will? <laughs> well, first of all, I began to think about uh, seriously going into Jewish life. I, I, you know, I could have been in business. My brother-in-law wanted to take me into the jewelry business on 47th Street. But I had this feeling that I should do something in the Jewish community. I was learning for Smicha. And uh, sure enough, I didn't make up my mind for sure. I was learning for Smicha, but wouldn't, didn't know, would I get a pulpit? What's going on? How is it going to be? And one day, if you talk about Basheret, there was no heating in the main base bedroom in RJJ. So we went across the street to that goodness on So we were studying in that goodness on and then they fixed the heating, and we went back to the base bedroom. Go back to the base bedroom. There's a rabbi, Bernard Goldenberg, where he worked for Torah Masora previously. He was the rabbi in Vancouver. He came to RJJ, uh, Rabbi Jacob Joseph School, and he was asking around, he needs an assistant rabbi. Just then, I had come back into the base Medrash, and Rav Shmuel David Vashavshik said to Rabbi Goldenberg, that young man is the one you want to talk to. <laughs> Talked to me and told me that he needs a, they need an assistant rabbi. And I said, you know what? Why not? Give it a try. Of course, I have a warm problem. I wasn't married. And I wasn't going with, and I'm sure they weren't going to take me to be an assistant rabbi, nor was I going to go. Baruch Hashem, since I started the conversation with him, three months later, I met my wife. And uh, we got married. And I went to Vancouver. And I was the assistant rabbi for two years. And I became the senior rabbi for 13 years. And that changed everything because it was in Vancouver. The first time in my life, I met people that were not orthodox. I didn't have any deep friendships with too many people. I had a few, but most of my friends were all Yeshiva. I never met people that drive to Shul on Shabbos with a car until I went to Vancouver. And that introduced me to the global world. It introduced me to the fact that there are many Jews who are wonderful people. They just never learned in yeshivas. And the question is, you can either ignore them and spend your life around like-minded people, 
or you can do something about it. I chose to do something about it. And I began a, a conversation with people that were not religious. We had a very big shul. And a matter of fact, my first humorous story, it's an absolute true story. Every word is that I, I just became the rabbi. Rabbi Goldberg left. I didn't know how to run a shul, 1,400 seats. Rosh Hashanah Kippur had 1,400 people in the shul. So a week before, I get a call from City Hall. This was 1964. I get a call, and the question is as follows. We're doing a survey of all churches and synagogues. And the question is as follows. In the event of a nuclear attack <laughs> by the Soviet Union, how many people can your congregation, Sharetzedek, sleep in the case of a national emergency? So I'm, I was shocked by the question, and I said, uh, I'll tell you the truth, I have no idea, but I, I can give you a hint. On the high holidays, she sleeps 1,400. <laughs> And so the, <laughs> the clerk laughed, but he put down 1,400. <laughs> well, thank God you never had to, God, to utilize that in any practical way. <laughs> you know, just stepping back for a second, what do you think it was that drove you to want to get into helping Jewish life? I mean, you were doing well as, as a budding business person, and you were studying, but what voice within you, what message within you was sort of, pushing you to do my, my education in the yeshiva that you should do something you know we all by then uh, you know i was married and i knew the whole story of the holocaust so what are we going to do about it there and there were so that after the holocaust there was the threat of assimilation many jews were leaving and i thought that this is a more fulfilling and more needed task and so i went into rabbonis and I'm one of the few people that you will not hear me say, and I wish that I never went into the Rabbanis. I don't believe that at all. I think it was, for me, it was a wonderful opportunity. I met wonderful people, and I had to schuss whether I accomplished something, a little bit, whatever I accomplished, I think is more than I would have accomplished as a jewelry salesman. Vancouver is an interesting a location it must have felt like going to Siberia at that time I and mean, it's a different country freezing cold climate hockey uh, fans everywhere was that a culture shock for you from the lower east side absolutely a cultural shock and i'll tell you i tell you you know, it's such a cultural shock and i'll tell you this i come there you know i'm not i don't know i know how we conduct bar mitzvahs in the litovitzka shul or in the yeshiva yeshiva's rabbi of yosef but i didn't learn how they conduct bar mitzvahs. So come out of Vancouver and I see they give a chumash and a siddah. Every bar mitzvah boy gets a chumash and a siddah. And of course it was the, at that time, the Sancino edition before Rod Scroll. The Sancino edition, we gave it out. And a man comes to me and he brought a box and he says that he wants to add to the gifts. So I said, what have you got? And the man's name was Mr. Putterman. I said, what, what do you got? He says, I'd like to give an umbrella to every bar mitzvah boy. I said, excuse me, we can't do that. So why not? I said, well, first of all, the shul. I'm not going to give on Shabbos an umbrella because <laughs> And so I, I can't do it. He said, listen, Rabbi, don't think that mine was just an, just an outrageous suggestion. I mean, think about it. 
my gift, they'll at least open. <laughs> so I said, I'm here to make sure they open our gifts. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So it sounds like you were in, in Vancouver for a nice period of time. 15 what, years. 15 years. So it's really the kind of the bulk of your, of your early career. And I would imagine that you would have anticipated staying either there or in another large Jewish community as a rabbi. What ultimately eventuated your departure from there? Simple. We had a day school by then. <clears throat> by that time, we had um, NCSY was very strong. Was that Pinky Bach was there yet? I brought Pinky Bach from Oakland. Right. And uh, Pinky Bach was an amazing mechanic. I told him he belonged in day schools and not in afternoon schools where he was in Berkeley. And he came there. Remember that the Talmud Torah was not under our shul. It was a community school. He had to turn that around completely, which he did amazingly. And uh, unfortunately, he died at a young, too young of an age. Right. Uh, later in New York, working with Rabbi Riskin. And, uh, in Lincoln Square. Yeah. Yes. And I've met his well, son recently in, uh, in New York. Yeah. So. You know, the, the, the whole family, uh, remarkable family. And he was a remarkable mechanic. And so, but there was no, you know, no high school. And so we decided to leave. Your children were getting older? Children were getting older. And uh, thanks to two of the Balabatim there, they agreed to fund. I was going to start at Baal Shuva Yeshiva. It was going to be post high school. But when we, and we started successfully, it was uh, Eula, carrying Wayu's name in LA. It was going to be a Balchuva Yeshiva for post high school. And then the community leaders came to us and said, there's no high school because Rambam closed. So we built a high school. So these, these were people you had met that lived in LA that brought you to LA? No, it was, no, it was the Bellsberg family that and the diamond family two families from vancouver that okay. supplied the funds and the leadership that were otherwise i would never have been able to take because i didn't know anybody in la right so uh, we started with the post high school then when the community leaders in la said we don't have a high school that took priority so we opened eula high school boys and girls separate campuses six months later we had a huge building Six months later, I had the idea that in the United States, how could it be that in the most sophisticated country in the world, freest democracy on the planet, there wasn't a single address to talk about the Shoah. And I had this idea. I'd met Simon Wiesenthal one time in the 1960s, taking a group from Vancouver. So to start the Simon Wiesenthal Center, we began with nothing in the, in the building. And uh, we got uh, permission from Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, he agreed to, for us to use his name. And uh, we started with no, with no members. And as I speak to you today, we have 400,000 members. Wow. And what it's was, one of the largest Jewish organizations in the world. What was the goal? I mean, it sounds the like... The goal was, how could it be if the United States didn't remember the Holocaust, there was no address... I mean, what, what does that say about the rest of the world? Yes, there was Yad Vashem, but Yad Vashem was in Israel. But in the diaspora, where, you know, it all mattered, that in, it was in the diaspora that National Socialism was born. 
So we started the Simon Wiesnall Center, and I have to tell you, when we first started it, we started with a shoebox. Had a little design and wood in a shoebox. Many survivors didn't want to recall the past. They weren't so enamored with the idea. And we met many people, and one of the first people, this was one of, you know, when something has to be done, it, it finds its way to be done in the strangest way. So in this case, what I did, we opened the yeshiva, which occupied one-third of the building. We had two-thirds unoccupied. And I had a long extension court, didn't even have an office, because we were in the middle, you know, it was nishtahin and nishtahir. We were trying to figure out what we can do with the other two-thirds of the building. So I would... Um, had a long extension cord waiting for certain if people, you know, people had to reach me. And I get a call by a man with the roughest voice I ever heard. And the guy says to me exactly like this, are you a rabbi hire? I said, uh, yes. I said, who's calling? He says, my name is Mickey Rudin. I'm Frank Sinatra's attorney. Huh. I almost fell off. I, I said, excuse me. Frank, Frank Sinatra's attorney. I said, why are you calling me? So he says, are you going to be in your office for two hour, about two hours? I said, I'll be in my office for, uh, yes, I will be here. I didn't want to tell him I, it's not an office, but <laughs> I will be here. I said, why, why are you asking me, Mr. Rudin? He says, you're going to get a call from Frank Sinatra. So I said, Frank Sinatra is going to call me. So I said to Mr. Rudin, thank you so much. Because Rudin is a Jewish name. Right. So Mr. Rudin, thank you so much for making this possible. I said, what are you thanking me for? Rabbi, I told him he's out of his mind. <laughs> Why would you want to call? You read in a Jewish paper that they're organizing the Simon Wiesenthal Center. It says, that's why you want to call them and use your name? How do you know they're going to be successful, Frank? They could be a disaster, and you're going to lend your name to an institution like that? So I said to Mr. Rudin, so if that's the case, why is he calling? He says, because he doesn't listen to his attorney. That's why. <laughs> Unbelievable. So he had just heard about this that was going on. He read it in the Jewish paper. Wow. And he became, he was very active. He was a, became a member of our board of trustees. He solicited many Jews. He said that he spends his life creating fiction, fictional heroes. And he said, here's a man, Simon Wiesenthal. Look what he did with his life and look what he did to protect the memory of the Jewish people. And he said, he's the real McCoy. He said, and if I can give him a hand, I want to do so. He invited us to his home and solicited many of our first contributors, personally, over the phone. Unbelievable. Can you just briefly tell us who was Simon Wiesenthal and, and what, what captured you about him? Simon Wiesenthal was an architect by profession. He had no, he wasn't religious. He was an architect by profession. Bill designed many homes, uh, you know, in, where he lived, in Buchach, a little city in Poland but called Bichach. During the Shoah, unfortunately, he lost 89 members of his family. Wow. As a matter of fact, in school, when he sent his daughter to school, 
she was the only one who had no relatives whatsoever. And she asked her parents, where are our relatives? They didn't want to tell her because it was too much of a young age. And Simon Wiesenthal, even though he had no background in intelligence, no background on how you find criminals, he was an architect. He, while he was in the different camps, he drew sketches of what those killers looked like, retained in his memory their names, and believe it or not, most people don't know this, May 29, 1945, about two and a half weeks after the war ended, he submitted his first list. He would have submitted it earlier, but no one understood Yiddish. He met a GI who understood Yiddish. He gave the GI the names, and the GI typed the names in an English list for the Allied Wartime Crime Commission. And he submitted his first list of criminals on May the 29th from memory, on May the 29th, 1945. Since then, he brought to justice, and I always frame it this way when I speak publicly. So just imagine if we would be speaking in FBI headquarters, CIA headquarters, MI6 headquarters, or any other headquarters around the world, and we asked the following question to an assembly of all those agents gathered in the auditorium. Will anyone please rise if you have a record of bringing to justice 1,100 war criminals? Nobody would stand up. Not in the FBI, not in the CIA, not in MI6. He was a man who basically, because he lost 89 members of his family, recreated his whole life. And you know, the best way I once heard this was in the Torah by Yoshebel Soloveitchik. Rabbi Soloveitchik says that you, it's a matter of turning fate, F-A-T, into destiny. It was a man that basically his fate was, you have no mishpacha, nowhere, not on your wife's side, not on your side. You can either cry about it you can bemoan this situation, or you can wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to do something about it. And he turned his fate into destiny and became the most famous Nazi hunter. And the person, you know, he wasn't religious. And I always told him, Simon, when you come to Shomayim in the next world, and they're going to say, well, what mitzvahs did you do? You know, what were your, what were your, what were your mitzvah? You would proudly be able to say, there's no one in the world who fulfilled the mitzvah of more than I did. And you met him in the 60s? Just met him first in the 60s. And then I went to ask for his permission and uh, to name the institution in uh, early 77. And when I met him again, you know, in uh, 77, he uh, said that basically, how does he know? I brought someone with me, a lay person who was young and said that his parents were killed, his grandparents were killed in the Shoah. And uh, Simon, he had confidence that we were gonna do something about it. And he gave us his name and he only made one condition. He said, the condition is, these are his words. He said, what I don't want is an institution that will collect all the data put it in a deep freeze in a freezer and become just a research institution. 
He says, I want an activist institution to speak out against anti-Semitism when it occurs, to, to help the Jewish people to defend the state of Israel, to do so publicly and de-emphasize the research and emphasize the fact that you, if you see hatred and anti-Semitism against Jews after we lost one third of the Jewish people, you have to do something about it. That was the only condition he had. What was the goal of the center? Was it to perpetuate his Nazi hunting approach no. or was it to spread awareness no. of the Shoah and... Awareness of the Shoah and to defend the Jewish people against anti-Semitism, to defend the state of Israel, and to speak out against, you know, crimes against humanity or committed anywhere in the world. The Simon Wiesenthal Center has spoken out on many of the international issues that do not affect only exclusively Jews. That's our obligation. We can't say, we only say it's bad if you, we don't want gas chambers set up against Jews. We don't want them set out against anybody, against any innocent person. And we're an activist organization, and we have offices around the world. We're building a major museum in the center of Yerushalayim. I passed by the, uh, the open space where it's uh, yeah. coming up. Yeah, and we have a film division that, uh, you know, many of the thanks to people like uh, this helped us out, and Frank Sinatra and others. We have a full, our film division has its own recording studios, its own, uh, you know, both sound, editing equipment, complete f facilities, self-contained in our building. Incredible. Uh, you know, it, what's amazing to me is that if, if I would have imagined sort of who would be the profile of a person that would be getting involved in Shoah awareness and combating anti-Semitism and so forth, I would maybe picture someone who himself had lived through the horrors, uh, you know, of, of that period. But here, here we are that you were someone who grew up in, in the relative safety of New York and didn't really have that many personal connections. What galvanized you to take this stand? I mean, you were a rabbi, you were a day school educator, a high school, running a high school. Yeah, that's a full-time job for, for most people. And something within you said, I need to start this, this movement or this, this place. What was that? Well, I'll tell you something. One day I took, when we first moved to LA, and we didn't start the center yet, I took my children to the Tar Pits. Tar Pits is a place in LA that they show the traces of the footprints of dinosaurs. The actual footprints occurred. They're preserved in a place called the Tar Pits. A young girl, not Jewish, asked the guide, we were, we were with this group, asked the tour guide whether or not the dinosaurs can come back. This is what the tour guide said. The dinosaurs can't come back because of climate changes, drastic climate changes on Earth. It's impossible for them to breathe, and they cannot come back to the planet Earth. On the way back, it bothered me, that answer. I said to myself, the dinosaurs can't come back because of climate. Can Hitler come back? Has there been a climate change that automatically eliminates Hitler? And I said, there isn't. And here we are, we have one third of our building is yeshiva. Why not start in the, that's where the kernel of the idea came from. 
to say, because we can't say that because of climate conditions, there isn't going to be Mishugoyim on the world that want to kill each other out. And so and that's gave me the idea, even though I didn't have any, you know, I have distant relatives that were killed in the Shoah, because I thought, you know, it's important for the future. You said you started as this sort of shoebox and you had this building, but how did you take it from this small enterprise to this massive global a network now. I mean, Frank Sinatra, it sounds like, was very helpful. And it's clearly... It just, it, it, yeah, but then, what, you know what happens is, you know, I think, I don't remember who, who said it. If non-Jews come into a project, the Jews run after it. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not. But here, we, we got an assist by him and others in the entertainment community, and then we have many wonderful people in the Jewish community, leaders that stepped forward, and it just kept growing, and eventually um, I had to, you know, uh, the Wiesendorf Center, which was at first part of the yeshiva, separated, became its own charity in 1984, and became its own entity, and today it has, we have offices around the world, and the project we're building in Yetz Hashem in Israel, in the center of Yerushalayim, will be twice the size of our project here in Los Angeles. And it's something that is necessary, unfortunately, in an unpredictable world. And everybody should do whatever they can. So as long as the Rabon Shlolom gives me strength, that's what I will do. And, um, you know, I'm happy that I made the decision not to go to 47th Street. I, I, vi- I recently visited 47th Street. It looks to me the same as when <laughs> I first took my first look at it. And I'm happy with what I'm doing. Same diamonds. Who were some of the early Jewish entertainers and Hollywood types that got involved? And again, talking about if the theme is sort of culture shock, what was that like for you starting to, you know, have to be ingratiated with some of these people? Well, first of all, we we were very privileged that almost everybody in the entertainment community, from the heads of the studios to stars like, and for example, Kirk Douglas, he wanted to star as Simon Wiesenthal. So you had Kirk Douglas, Michael Douglas. One of the greatest stories was when uh, Gregory Peck uh, and Sir Lawrence Olivier, widely regarded as one of the greatest stars in the history of Hollywood. So the two of them starred in a film, The Boys from Brazil, about Simon Wiesenthal. That's, the, that's what it's about. Simon attended the premiere. After the premiere, as they crowded around him, so Lawrence Olivier and Gregory Peck, Simon Wiesenthal said like this in his sort of Yiddish accent voice. He said, Mr. Peck, you played a better Mengele than Mr. Olivier played a Wiesenthal. <laughs> and to say that to Sir Lawrence Olivier, so I couldn't understand how he could say that and why he said it. He explained. He said, no, he said to Lawrence Olivier, you portrayed me as if I loved being a detective, said, I hate being a detective. I would much rather be with my daughter, much rather be with my family if they were alive. Unfortunately, they were taken from me. So the only complaint I have is, you liked your job in the film as a detective. I hate mine. I'd rather be a, a normal person listening to music, reading a book, but I was forced by history 
to take on my role. Incredible, incredible. What's been the most surprising thing to you about Hollywood, having been so ensconced in that, in that world now for so long? I would just say that most people don't know. First of all, I'm a believer. You can't judge people. Look, I had a Jewish education. I was put through, I went to elementary school, went to high school, I got smicha. So I know my way around Jewish life. People who didn't have that opportunity shouldn't be judged. If I didn't have that opportunity, I wouldn't want someone to judge me on that basis. So you have to understand, you're talking to people that in many cases don't have that background, but they are wonderful people. And if you spend time with them, and try to cultivate that. Look, do we have disputes about Israel? Of course you have disputes about it. I hold my ground. But the fact of the matter is that, look, uh, we take a look at NCSY. NCSY brought tens of thousands of young people to Yiddishkeit. What if there wasn't an NCSY? So you can't blame, if a person didn't have the opportunities that we had in terms of Jewish education, I can't fault them for that. If that would have happened to me, I also wouldn't have had any background at all. You have to do it. You have to work with them and bring them into the fold. And I've done that. I found that it's a wonderful, that the reaction, I, did, do not, I see that if you prepare to put in the work, you'll be very happy with the results. So you find that even though Hollywood is projected as sort of a- Very liberal. And a very shallow and, culture. Yes, but- Many of them, people that I met, I encourage them to go to Israel. They've gone to Israel. So, you know, it's like every community. I look, I was growing up in the Lower East Side. I was like cloistered. In other words, I knew there were people who were not religious on the Lower East Side. I never paid any attention to them. I just had my yeshiva friends. Now my job is a different job. It's not just to cultivate yeshiva friends. So I, I spend time when I see that it pays off and I would advise others to do that because you can't blame people who didn't have the background for not knowing things. Do you find that in that culture where, again, there seems to be a very sort of a superficial environment, do you find that people are thirsting for something deeper? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, many of, them, many of them don't know that they're related to great scholars. I won't mention names, but in many cases, you trace their history, they come from unbelievable background. So look, if you put in the time, but I also want to say that we have great Jewish leaders that, you know, in, in leadership in the lay community that have come forward for, you know, to help us. And I would encourage to your listeners and people listening, we need people in Jewish life. We need young people today, whether they're religious or not religious, to think about helping the Jewish community in the United States, around the world, doing whatever we can, uh, remembering there are only 14 million Jews in the world. Without the Holocaust, there would have been a lot more. So as Rabbi Yankov Flanskarabin told me, each one of us has an obligation to bring in many others because we are acting on behalf of the 6 million that are no longer with us who would have done that work if they were alive. Powerful message. Justin, starting to, to close, um, you were in the news. For, I mean, you've been in the news for many different reasons, including, I think, named as the most influential rabbi in America and some other wonderful accolades. But I guess most notably, you delivered the invocation at the pre presidential inauguration. 
And I think that was you know, something that was met with some level of controversy. And tell me about what that experience was like and what your thought process was surrounding that really monumental event. Well, first, let me say that it, it, it was meant, it met with some controversy. I received the pictures with the devil, the swastika on it, and there are many Jews who were upset because it was President Trump. So the first thing I replied is, look at the hypocrisy. Uh, see, there are no complaints that the Obamas were there, President Carter was there, the Bushes were there, the Clintons were there, but they want a rabbi in the country that treated the Jews better than any diaspora country in the history of the globe. They were, the American Jewish community said they want a rabbi be invited by a president of the United States and the rabbi should say, I'm not coming. That's ridiculous. It never, it never entered my mind for a second. I was very happy to accept the invitation. And by the way, I was exceptionally happy to be at the opening in Jerusalem where the United States recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So did I get criticism from certain levels of the Jewish community? I told them that if the invitation was extended again, I would do the same thing again. Wouldn't even doubt, wouldn't even take me two seconds to consider it because it would be a chutzpah. Here we are in a country that Jews thrive and that a Jew should say, you know what, I'm not coming. It was okay for the, uh, for the Obamas to be happy, smiling, when they had to smile to the cameras and the Clintons were okay, but a rabbi should make the case he's not coming. What was that experience like for you? So it was a very interesting experience. And I'll tell you something that people don't know. First of all, they took us there at 7.30 in the morning by police escort. We wouldn't go outside till about 11 o'clock, 11.15. So it started raining. About at 10 o'clock, it started raining, and the cardinal of New York, he, the cardinal, he came over to me. And there comes outside, and there are about 100, 100 people, and they're beginning to give these plastic see-through uh, raincoats. So the cardinal said, I want you to know the rabbi is in charge of the rain. <laughs> 15 minutes later, it stopped raining. <laughs> so I said to the cardinal, your eminence, am I still in charge? <laughs> and, and anyway, what happened was, so the funniest thing was this. In the morning, when we arrived, the chairman of the inauguration committee came over and said, do you want to add a line or do you, you want to keep it the way it is? You know, you could add a line if you want. So I it, thought it, was, it was a script that they gave you, the blessing? Yes. No, no, the script I had written, each one wrote, we all wrote our own material. Okay. But he said, if you want to add a line, you could do so. So I said, well, you know what? I said, um, maybe the part that I'm saying, if I forget the old Jerusalem in my right hand, I'd like to say that in Hebrew. You think it would be possible? He says, fine. About an hour later, he comes back to me and he says, Rabbi, you know what we were talking about, the line? You should take it out. I said, why? He says, you wouldn't believe it. It's like one out of a million. He said, you know the uh, Latino uh, clergy who's going, to, who's going to also say a prayer? He came over and he said that he wants to do the hallelujahs in Hebrew. And he says, now, how's it going to look? Everybody's speaking Hebrew. <laughs> this is an American inauguration. 
So I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs> I know that many people were very proud when you did say, you know, when you said that verse, um, and, and certainly it, it foreshadowed what came not too long after with the embassy opening in Jerusalem. Just in closing, Rabbi Heyer, what would you say is, is sort of the next phase and, and really the, the emerging challenges of our day? You're building this tremendous center in Jerusalem. What do you feel are like the signature battles that your institution is tasked with? I would say today? to make sure that there's no change. Let's remember one thing. Europe is no longer friendly turf. There are divisions in Europe. The Jewish community has weakened tremendously every place in Europe. We don't want the same thing to happen in the United States of America. You have to be very careful that in the United States, there's bipartisan support. We need Democrats and Republicans supporting the state of Israel. And we don't want any slippage. And I have to tell you, there seems to be slippage. I was born on the Lower East Side. And I remember great Democratic Party champions of Israel, Hubert Humphrey. There was a Harry Truman. There was a Scoop Jackson. We have to make sure on the Democratic side that there are those kinds of Democrats in our future. Very concerned that there were no Democrats present at the embassy dedication. And that, that is very, that sends the wrong message because as what is the problem with Europe? There's no bipartisan support in Europe. There's only partial support. We don't want a United States where only one of the major parties is going to be support. We need what we've had in the past, total bipartisan support for the state of Israel. And that, that, that is one of the biggest concerns that we have in the future. And so you're, you're working on that through the, through the Institute? Yeah, through the Wiesenthal Center, we tried to, you know, through and our project in Israel, which is being the center of Yerushalayim. It's on Rechov Hillel, you know where it is. It's Absolutely. across the street from the Waldorf. It'll open in 14 months from now. 14 it's months. And, and what are going to be the major projects operating out of there? Well, it'll operate on the world today. So you'll have the people's journey. How did the Jews survive? No land. No army, no flag, 2,000 years. On our core values, Elud Vorum, So the, we're going to have seven pavilions of core values. Faith, scholarship, standing up to evil, community. And when I mean scholarship, we mean Torah. Faith means Avoda. Those pavilions, that's half the museum. The other half of the museum is a social laboratory on today's 21st century issues. Terrorism, delegitimization of only one country in the UN. The UN obsessed with one country called the State of Israel. And the social lab will tell that story in today's world. So it doesn't at all compete with Yad Vashem. The Museum of Talent Jerusalem is about today's and tomorrow's issues. Incredible. I look forward to visiting there, in, as you said, in 14 months. And um, I'm sure I'll be bringing groups of people in, in my work as a rabbi with college students. And it, it sounds like it's going to be an incredible place uh, to be. Rabbi Marvin Heyer, thank you so much for your time and for sharing of your incredible story. Wishing you much health and success in all of the incredible ventures that you are a part of until 120 years.
Amen. And to you too. Keep up your great work. Keep those podcasts going. <laughs> and, uh, it was very happy to be with you. Thank you, Rabbi Hyer. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.